probably having had a very liquid lunch, the gentleman said, were there any other problems? And this guy said, well, we're short of quite a lot of money on the account. He said, oh dear, are we? Well, we better do something about it. So he called in one of his lackeys and asked them to take the gentleman out into the, um, he said, the sample room. Anyway, they went into the sample room and closed the door on them. But in actual fact, it was a cold store. So they left them in the cold store for about um, two to three hours and then brought them out. And they were asked the question, do you really need the money? To which said gentleman said, no, I think we could maybe do without it. Hello and welcome to the Whiskey Legends podcast, where I'll be speaking to one legend in particular, my granddad Tim Morrison, who's been working in whiskey for over 60 years, helping to develop the industry since his granddad in the early 1900s. Throughout this series, we'll be hearing about how things have evolved from someone with unique first-hand experience, from cleaning the kiln and malting barley in the 60s, buying Isla's Bowmore Distillery and pioneering the single malt whiskey category with his brother in the 70s, to building the Clydeside Distillery in Glasgow with his son and my uncle only a few years ago. We'll hear some incredible stories on how business has been done both at home and abroad over the last hundred years. So if you're someone that enjoys hearing about the history, magic and lasting relationships behind the liquid you love, then this is the podcast for you. In our first episode, we'll hear about my great-granddad's entry into the industry in 1925 and how he bought and sold a grocer's in Aberdeen you may have heard of called Shivers Brothers. We'll hear about the opportunities there after the ending of Prohibition, who the major players were and how business was done at that time. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like featured in future series, please leave them in the ratings or on our YouTube or social channels, which you can find in the description. Pops, we're finally recording our whiskey podcast did you think it would happen um i thought there was a question mark over it <laughs> you'd only listened to a podcast for the first time three days ago that's it yeah yeah, yeah. but we're here and uh, just for a bit of context on on how this came about obviously i've heard your amazing stories over the years on the golf course in the car over dinner and it would be uh, a shame for other people interested in whiskey and and the history of it not to hear them as well so here we are um a bit of uh of background you're obviously um still in the industry now been in the industry for 60 64 years 64 years and your family has been around for you know 100 to 200 years yeah on both sides that makes a a good place to start really um you know, when your your dad came into the whiskey industry, uh, I think it was, was it 1925? 1925, that's correct. And how did he so come I'm, into it? You know, from my point of view, um, Andrew, there's um, that it, it's not something that neither my brother nor I know much about. Mm. Um, I, not a lot of was talked about it at the time I suppose because um, we didn't we there was a considerable time before we came into the industry and therefore we weren't really made aware of what his job was or his position was what we do know is that William Walker was um, a fairly major broker brokering house at the time but also 
they were exporters of blended whiskey as well and they had quite a number of blends that they uh, exported but that side of the family had been in the wine and spirit industry for five or six generations as well in not just um, from the export business but also domestically as uh, wine and spirit merchants yeah and what was the the sort of wider industry like at that point in the in the 20s well the industry was actually very active at that time and it's interesting um prior to um us doing this podcast i was able to look through um this period of 25 through to 35 40 and um the activity that was going on in the industry um, was really quite noticeable and um, impressive. And But the major player at that time was the Distillers Company. And Distillers Company um, owned most of the malt whiskey distilleries, as well as the grain distilleries, uh, and of course the major players, brand players at that time as well. And where was William Walker Company? I would say William Walker at that time was in the, the middle of the pack. Yeah. Um, you had companies like um, Arthur Bell, um, Robertson Baxter, a Highland Distinneries, um, all were very active. Um, and I think the interesting thing is that in the collection that we have in the Clyde side, that you will see a lot of the brands that were active at that time mm-hmm. in the in 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 our collection. Sadly, very few of whom now are active. Yeah. So they were. I mean, William Walker, that side of the family is already well established. What about your father's side of the family? Were they in the at, drinks, or was at, it? No, my father's side um, were probably um, through my. My father's grandfather, John Morrison, was the leading construction company in Glasgow mm-hmm. at that time, having been formed in about 1860. And um, uh, I think they sold out to Sir William Arrell in probably about 1922 for quite a sizable sum of money. But they had... Um, a huge portfolio of product of products of, of buildings that today are significant in Glasgow. Yeah, and sure. you found out after you purchased the Clyde side that actually your was it great? My great grandfather had built had yeah. built those, and you had only built, found that out. Yes, it came about um, as a result of a book that a friend of ours had written uh, about um, the Clyde and the history of the Clyde and um, what was going on at the time. So what were some of um, William Walker's bigger brands at at that time? And I guess what was the the main business for them? How did they make their their money in the the whiskey industry specifically? Well, the main part of his business was the export uh, of um, blended whiskies. And he had a number of brands... Swords, Swords Eight Reigns, Gauntlet, uh, William Walker, and uh, they were primarily exported to America. That was his biggest market. 
but he also was pretty active um, in the uh, UK market as not so much a broker, but he was the agent, for instance, for Glenn Farkless Distinery. And he was very friendly, of course, with the Grant family. And um, he operated that business out of the, the centre of, of Glasgow. Which yeah. And there so was a number of distilleries in Glasgow were, at that time, wasn't there? Were, there? At that time, there weren't so much many of the distilleries, uh, although there were a few, um, but of course there had been in the past yeah. uh, a huge number of distilleries. But uh, there were so many very well-known whiskey blending, famous whiskey blending houses situated in Glasgow at that time. So there's basically a very well-established market for it. I guess you could say it was it was booming at the time. And that's when your dad came back from Asia, joined William Walker. How did you know how he got that, that I job? I have no idea. No, no idea at all. What did he do for him in those initial days? I can only days? presume that he was in charge of stock and um, that job, buying and selling stock. So he was a broker? He was a him. broker, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my father basically was a broker from day one until he died. Yeah, and that's where he met your, your mum as well? Through. My mother, yes, and um, and coincidentally, of course, my grandfather had an estate on Isla, and um, so they would socialise over there and obviously met my mother and... Um, here you are. Here we are, and Here yes. I am. <laughs> here you are. Um, and so he worked for... He worked for your your granddad for how many years and 25 probably 10 years okay around 10 years and then and he then sort he, of went his own way or no he joined a, um, a gentleman called Bobby Lundy and um, they formed Lundy and Morrison and they bought uh, a grace a grocer's business in Aberdeen Shivas Brothers um, and um there are two particular things behind that was the fact that they had the king's warrant and that they had very good uh, stocks of whiskey. And Shivers Brothers, obviously, completely different brand then? today. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. What were they then? Purely a grocer's shop in Aberdeen. Just one shop? One shop. Specialising in whiskey. That's right, yeah. So they bought that and is that you know, how they made most of their money or...? Um, yeah, I would think so because they had very good stocks and um, were able to um, m move these whiskies. I think also uh, began to establish their own contacts within the industry at the at the same time. Schiffer's brothers attracted interest then from America, from Seagram, the Seagram Company, and the Bronfman family. And they decided that this would be a brand um, and a business that they would like to own. And so they bought it in 1947. From your father and, From and Lundy? From Lundy and Morrison, yeah. And what, what did they then do with Shivers? What was their...? Well, then, basically, they re-established established Shivers Brothers down in um, uh, Paisley. They had blending and bottling facilities down there. And then they started uh, investing in stock. 
And um, the other thing, of course, to remember then was that, um, you know, um, a prohibition had come to an end. Yeah. So the demand for Scotch brands were increasing. And so end of prohibition was, I think, 1933. 30, 35, I 35, think. around that time. Yeah. Um your father was with Lundy, I guess, was that kind of small scale at this yes, point with yes. Shivers? When did it start to, you know, take off for your, your father? Well, um, Lundy and Morris and Bobby Lundy and my father then decided to go their own separate ways. And in 1949, my father um, set up a company, Stanley P. Morrison Limited, as whiskey brokers. And for people listening that might know the you know whiskey and the brands but aren't so educated on the other side of whiskey what is a a whiskey broker a whiskey brokers um in those days uh, were responsible for buying and selling stocks for companies uh, within the industry because for some reason or other the companies would not the blending companies would not deal with themselves. Um, they wouldn't go direct. They wouldn't go direct. So the brokers um, were the the medium in which the industry actually moved uh, stocks. Yeah, and why was the reason for that? Just ease? Or? I don't know. It was. It it seemed. It does seem a inefficient and b um, rather strange when you've got um, companies that are highly profitable and mm. know their way around the industry um, but nevertheless that's how an awful lot of people in the late 40s and early 50s made made a lot of money so your father set up his own brokerage company in which year 1949 49 how old would you have been then probably about eight and do you remember those days at all? Were you no. were you close to it, or no. you didn't go to any of the distilleries no. or anything no. like that? Nothing like that. No, no, no. no. Um, I suppose I must have gone to his office on the odd occasion, but yeah, um, that wouldn't really have. Yeah, the infatuation didn't start there. Not or at all. Like that. No, no, no. Um, and um, although a lot of our our friends and family friends were people who were in the industry yeah so I guess it just kind of you absorbed it yeah yeah um so he he started his own company how did that then really start to grow was there any particular clients he had that it 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 made it fly or he did he did a lot of business with a com- companies like the distillers company like Arthur Bell's um like McDonald and Muir um, because each broker and had their own, if you like, favourite or their, their close companies with which they worked. Um, and um, I, I remember basically my father going through every Tuesday to Edinburgh to meet with the distillers company and take a list of whiskies that were available to them and also let them know what he was looking for. And they would probably have done about 100,000 quid's worth of business. 
um, and uh, then spend the rest of the week either moving or finding stocks for that particular customer. And um, bearing in mind he had a pretty good idea, as did the, breaker, the brokers, all have a pretty good idea of what whiskies were held by what companies and who were maybe heavy on stock or light in stock. So there was either exchanges um, or there was deals done. And then at, at that time, J&B, um, like Cutty Sark, was making its mark on the United States market. Yeah. And um, he was one of the four broking houses that were given the business by J&B to supply whiskey for the brand. And um, that was a very hefty contract. Very hefty. So that kind of propelled him Forward. to the next level, yeah. allowed him to do other things. Yeah, yeah. And was it just the US and the UK at this point? Was it other any other countries? No, we weren't dealing in any other countries at that time. Um, and how we, did he have that, the the initial contact with J&B? How per, did, personal contact. Just from meeting? Having known each other, known the people involved for many years, probably. Yeah. And they these people had trust in the... The brokers. Yeah. Um, none of these companies really wanted lots of people knowing that they were getting rid of so many um, casks or wanting to buy so many casks. Yeah. So it was. It was a personal, very personal relationship. Yeah. That the brokers had with their their blending houses. And how were the the sort of the deals done in those days? I imagine it wasn't like now where there's lawyers and no, contracts purely and, and things like that. a piece of paper between each person and saying, I want to buy this or I'm selling you 125,000 gallons at 25 yeah. shillings. And a handshake and that That's was it. that. And did yeah. that ever cause issues at the time? Well, you know, there was all sorts of stories about what happened during Prohibition and... Um, um, I think the one story that my father told me was um, of this particular gentleman um, who was very well known in the industry at the time, um, had been supplying a company in Chicago um, who had become a bit dilettant in uh, crediting the account back in Glasgow. And so... This particular gentleman went out to Chicago and uh, they discussed the various problems and eventually, um, probably having had a very liquid lunch, uh, the gentleman said, were there any other problems? And this guy said, well, we're short of quite a lot of money on the account. And um, he said, oh dear, are we? Well we better do something about it. So he called in one of his lackeys, asked him to take the gentleman out into the, um, he said, the sample room. Anyway, they went into the sample room, took them into the sample room and closed the door on them. But in actual fact, it was a cold store. 
So they left them in the cold store for about um, two to three hours and then brought them out. And they were asked the question, do you really need the money? To which said gentleman said, no, I think we could maybe do without it. Um, otherwise, they knew what was probably going to happen. But and you, of course, those were the, you know, the really nasty days in prohibition. Yeah. So you wouldn't have seen that. It was all a bit more uh, gentlemanly after after, that, after those years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the 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 industry is properly established then by the time your your dad's, um, I guess, developing the business through the fifties. And it's these big contracts with the likes of J&B. What were the significant businesses and other brands uh, at that time? Well, at that time, Distillers Company Limited was 50% of, of the industry, both as in terms of production with the number of malt distilleries they had and grain distilleries they had, and plus the brands. And those brands included Johnny Walker, Haig, Dewar's, White Horse, Black and White, and Vat 69. And then on the other hand, you had um, the independent companies like uh, McKinley's, Teachers, um, Lang Brothers, um, White Mackay. And those, those companies all had their own, their own brands. And McKinley's, Teachers, Long John, Lang's, White Mackay, Spay Royal, from Gilby's, Highland Queen, um, from MacDonald Muir, and uh, Famous Grouse from um, Matthew Glogue were the, were the other independent uh, brands that uh, had recognition at that time. Yeah, and Arthur Bell's, was that? And of course, Arthur Bell's, I'd forgotten Arthur was that Bell's. Indi- yes. Was that independent as well? That was independent, yes. And of course, I shouldn't have forgotten that, having spent my... And that's my where you first was first went, wasn't it? That's where I did my training. Yes. Yeah. Where but all... there were certainly no single malts. No. At none. the time, absolutely not at all. And probably not the number of no. distilleries there are. Oh, those a few are... years later. Ah, uh, well, that's true. But on the, at that time, there were quite yeah. quite a number of distilleries, and they were just there essentially to provide the spirit for these blended that's brands, the large that's blend correct. companies. Yeah. And then you obviously joined the industry in nineteen. 60 was it i joined the i went to work with arthur bell in 1960 and um, was with them for basically about eight months and then um, went to the north british distillery um, and then i joined the family business in 1961. next episode we'll hear what it's like to work on the production line of the distillery and warehouses in the early 60s as well as the culture and the people where things are just a little bit different to today with a lot less health and safety if you have any feedback or questions you'd like featured in future series please leave them in the ratings or on our youtube and social channels which you can find in the description 